Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, an historic childcare deal between the provincial and federal governments. The opposition liberals unveil a significant plank in their election platform. The Tories snag a star candidate to run in Kathleen Wynne's Toronto riding. The liberal NDP agreement on Parliament Hill has echoes of two previous eras at Queen's Park. And independent MPP Lindsay Park introduces a private member's bill focused on one of the saddest issues of our time, loneliness. It's Tuesday, March 29th, 2022, so let's get to it. Ontario now has a child care deal with the federal government, the last province in Canada to do so, but certainly not the least. JMM, let's run down the details if you would. Uh, So with the agreement announced today by uh, Premier Doug Ford and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in Brampton, uh, families in Ontario with kids under five in licensed childcare settings uh, will see their fees reduced by up to 25% uh, to a minimum of $12 a day. Uh, Parents will begin receiving rebate checks in May, retroactive to uh, April 1st. That's uh, April 1st of 2022, so coming in a few days. Uh, Fees will be cut in half on average by the end of this year. Uh, that on average is probably going to be doing some work for some families. Uh, That uh, equates, though, to an average uh, savings of $6,000 a year for families in Ontario. And by the end of four years, uh, fees will be down to $10 a day. Uh, That's that's probably the the biggest headline item and the one the federal liberals had uh, campaigned uh, on most. And that's $6,000 a year per child, yes? Uh, Yes, correct. Okay, so add it all up. The price tag on this will be... Uh, It will come to $13.2 billion over six years. Uh, The uh, agreements with the other 12 uh, provinces and territories uh, were five-year agreements. Uh, This is a six-year agreement uh, for $13.2 billion. So it's a bit more than the $10.2 billion that the federal government had had always been making available to Ontario, but it's also a a longer agreement. Uh, It also includes a, a mandated financial review in year three of the program. All right. The devil is always in the details with these things. So let's look at some of the details, because we have been hearing reports over the last couple of years that childcare workers are leaving the industry for a number of reasons. Um, you know, safety in the workplace is certainly one of them, but poor pay uh, has been an issue in childcare for ages. So do we think there will be enough spots to take care of all of this? Well, there is a part of the agreement that says that uh, the the intent is to create 86,000 new spaces. Now, some of those new spaces are like new spaces since this government took over, uh, but the very large majority of those would be uh, new spaces starting from today. Um, The agreement also stipulates a minimum wage of $18 an hour for staff and $25 an hour for supervisors. Uh, For uh, many uh, childcare workers, that would represent a a substantial increase in their wages. Uh, You know, this is an industry where uh, Every time the province increases the minimum wage, generally, uh, childcare does get a, a bit more expensive for a lot of people. So, you know, these will hopefully draw more workers into the industry and, and keep some of the workers we already have. Now, I don't think it's a cynical thing to point out that 
when you announce something like this so close to the provincial election, and we're just a little over two months away from the June 2nd election, uh, politics is obviously at play here. And uh, I raise this not just because of the timing of this particular deal, but also over the past weekend, the opposition liberals unveiled a big chunk of their election platform. And because we're talking about childcare, let's just start with that, because the liberals have said they will go one step further than the progressive conservatives. What's that about? Because the agreement with the the Ontario government has been so long in coming, uh, the Liberals under Stephen Del Duca have promised to refund parents uh, more than $2,700 per child uh, for the savings that they would have had if uh, Ontario had signed a child care agreement more or less when every other province in uh, province and territory in the country uh, already had. So the idea would be that, you know, if if we had already had this agreement uh, three months ago, for example, uh, the, the Liberals would be refunding uh, that three-month increment. Uh, Del Duca has promised that he will do this within 100 days of taking office if uh, the Liberals win the June 2nd election. Uh, he has assured people that uh, the $10 a day licensed child care for all ages would be in place by uh, 2020. Uh, you know, it's it's a bit of a, uh, an effort to take away the, the the victory parade that the Tories are expected to run here by announcing this agreement so close to the election. All right, let's stay with the Liberals because, as we suggested, there uh, a huge chunk of their election platform came out this past weekend, and it focused big time on the economy. So let's go through some of the bullet points for employees on that, if you would. Uh, probably the the biggest headline is that the Liberals want to uh, raise the minimum wage generally in the province to $16 an hour, and they also want to bring in regional living wages. So uh, in places where it is more expensive to live, to, to own or rent a home, uh, the minimum wage could, could go even higher. Uh, there is some precedent for this in, in other places. Uh, New York State, uh, just you know, across the border, uh, has uh, something like this. They have different minimum wages in, in Manhattan versus upstate. Uh, the Liberals are also proposing to provide all Ontario workers with uh, portable drug, dental, and mental health service benefits. Uh, they want to build to a four-day work week. Uh, again, there's some interesting stuff happening in, in different parts of Ontario where some smaller municipalities are, are testing that out to see how it works. Uh, they want to ban underpaid gig and contract work, uh, provide 10 paid sick days for all Ontario workers, and uh, on the, the portable benefits, the, the, the drug, dental, and mental health service benefits, I, I did want to flag for people that, again, this is something Stephen Del Duca has said he, he wants to move urgently on. Uh, you know, this is important because folks may remember what happened to OHIP Plus at the end of the last liberal government. Uh, OHIP Plus was uh, an attempt to, to bring in prescription drug coverage, but it was brought in so late in the last liberal term, uh, the Tories uh, came to power and they they got rid of that program and to be kind of blunt about it it just it hadn't sunk in with a lot of people it hadn't become something that people relied on so when it went away it did not create a whole bunch of political pain for the tories that reminds me of full day kindergarten for the liberals who implemented it early enough in their terms so that by the time it came time for the election even a conservative government which opposed it wasn't going to turn it out because too many people were already enjoying it at that point. Same idea this time, eh? Well, exactly. And I mean, not only do conservatives no longer oppose full-day kindergarten, but uh, at Monday's announcement, Premier Doug Ford is, is saying that uh, full-day kindergarten is, is such a, an important and unique part of Ontario's child care setting <laughs> that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's crucial that these agreements with the federal government reflect that. So, 
everything turns. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, all right. You just laid out what the liberal proposals are for employees. How about for people who own small businesses? Uh, for small businesses, the government would remove corporate taxes uh, for about two years. Uh, they also want to eliminate incorporation fees for new startup companies, uh, guarantee loans to small businesses, and, and help small businesses go digital. I mean, I think we remember at the beginning of the pandemic, it was sort of a discovery of how many of our um, local small businesses, like mom and pop shops, like they were being urged to do lots of things digitally, but some of these places just didn't even have websites. Um, and the, the, the government, or the, rather the liberals, I should say, uh, if they form government, would uh, also cap uh, credit card and delivery fees uh, paid by small businesses. Now, you and I always like getting into the weeds, so let's do a little really in the weeds political analysis here, because political parties often take different approaches to unveiling their platforms. And I well remember uh, before you were born, John Michael, or maybe <laughs> not, but you were a little kid anyway at the time. Uh, when Mike Harris's conservatives brought out their common sense revolution in 1994, that was a full year before the election campaign, and it was the whole platform, and they put it all out at once. Now, the liberals this time have decided to release their platform in bits and bytes in the lead up to the election rather than all at once. Why do you think they're taking this approach? Uh, well, the the blunt reality of this is that uh, the Liberals still are not an official party at the legislature. They, they have seven seats, uh, and they need as much attention as possible. So um, in, in much the same way that uh, Disney releases The Mandalorian one episode at a time, uh, instead of dumping it all in one big chunk. Good it, reference. Love that see, reference. you know, right. I'm hip with the kids, Steve. <laughs> um, <laughs> because it, it, it generates word of mouth. And uh, you, I think, you'll frankly, you'll see a lot of political parties uh, continue doing this. Certainly the Liberals Liberals, both provincially and federally, have done this, where uh, they they release the platform in, in chunks, and reporters cover every single release in bits and pieces instead of just you know getting one or two days of uh, media attention for dropping the whole uh, document all at once. Um, Incidentally, we should, of course, say that uh, the Liberals were not the only ones doing uh, a big election event this weekend. Uh, the Progressive Conservatives uh, released their slogan and a video this past weekend as well. Uh, the slogan is Get It Done. Uh, we should say that is the only slogan. There is no French translation. That was something that a few of our Francophone colleagues pointed out. Uh, you know, the video has lots of nice pictures of Doug Ford shaking hands and touring the province. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's an interesting contrast from the 2018 election in, in the last election, uh, at, certainly at, by one point in the election, they really wanted to, to de-emphasize Ford as the leader of the party and really put the emphasis on the team that was around him. Ford was relatively new. Uh, he was and, and remains polarizing. Uh, but now they, they obviously believe that he is an asset to the party, that uh, their chances of re-election are better if they put Ford front and center uh, in every single shot of uh, a campaign commercial. Well, and you won't be surprised to hear this, but the Liberals wanted to have a little fun at the Tories' expense at their platform drop event on the weekend. And Stephen Del Duca, the leader, referred to the Tories' new slogan, Get It Done, and then said the Liberals are going to do whatever they can to make sure Ford and his cronies are done. And he is very hopeful of prevailing in the upcoming June 2nd election. Should we earn the honor of governing Ontario starting on day one, June 3rd, we will start to rebuild this province. We have the energy, we have the drive, we have the ideas. And my goodness, we have an exceptional team and we will get that job done. The Liberals also unveiled a new logo. The old logo, I don't know how many people, you know, pay attention to or remember this stuff, but the old logo, for what it's worth, was a big, thick, box-like L for Liberals. 
and that has now been replaced with the word liberals inside a circle with an accent aigu on the E, so it's bilingual, works in English and French, I guess in contrast to the Tories' effort, which was only in English. Uh, okay, you saw the logo. What would you think of it? It strikes me as um, kind of retro, and I, I don't know if that's deliberate or, and, and, or what it might say about what they want us to associate with Stephen Del Duca, but it, it, it does strike me as the kind of thing you might have seen in like a 1970s or early 1980s sort of marketing campaign, um, which isn't to say that it's, it's, it's bad. Uh, it's just that's where my, my brain goes when I see it. Uh, you know, this is not a, a, an unheard of story. You know, new party leaders, they like to put their stamp on the party. They change the logo to freshen things up. Uh, Dalton McGinty uh, got rid of the, the more traditional uh, Trillium when he was premier and replaced it with something that looked like uh, three people holding hands in the shape of a trillium. Um, you know, the, the, governmentally, the Tories have changed a lot of the, the logos that the province uses uh, while they've been in power. Uh, Patrick Brown changed the PC Party logo. Uh, he added tinges of green and red to the PC Party, uh, suggesting that, you know, he would be prepared to take good ideas from other parties. And of course, that was something he said repeatedly in speeches. Uh, and then as soon as Doug Ford became leader, uh, he ditched a lot of the, the Patrick Brown um, paraphernalia, let's say, uh, and uh, they went back to the more traditional Tory uh, blue and white. So, you know, a, a very sort of uh, understandable, predictable story here about Del Duca trying to freshen up the, the liberal look. Well, here's what Del Duca himself had to say when I asked him why the party was changing the logo. This is a snippet from the news conference on the weekend. I personally love the circle. Uh, the circle to me represents Ontario, one Ontario. All of us in this together. Well, the Liberals were initially pretty happy with how their meeting went, but pretty soon a few people on social media started pointing out something a bit off about the visuals, and it actually led to some apologies on Twitter over the weekend. What was that all about? I think this is a, a relatively small thing overall, but the problem was that the Liberals were in a crowded room, uh, you know, inside a, a hotel conference room in uh, ter downtown Toronto um, that included lots of uh, Liberal candidates crowding on stage with Stephen Del Duca himself, uh, and they were all unmasked. Now, uh, let's be very clear that there's no law or regulation being broken here. Uh, indoor mask mandates are, are almost entirely repealed in Ontario. Uh, and I think it's very probably true that the large majority of people in the room were fully vaccinated. Uh, but for progressive politicians who have made this government's seriousness about pandemic policy uh, a key angle of attack, it definitely struck some people as a, as a poor visual cue. Uh, and indeed, some liberal candidates did apologize for the appearance of taking things too lightly uh, over the weekend. I'm not even sure the, the apologies were necessary, but I, I do know that lots of folks on social media wanted to hear them. And I think that gives you a sense of, of who the parties are listening to. Right. All right, let's move the spotlight now to the progressive conservatives who must be pretty pleased with this development. Former Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders, the first black police chief in Toronto history. Well, he has announced that he will be the PC candidate in the riding of Don Valley West. That is former Premier Kathleen Wynne's current riding. Of course, she's not standing for office again in the June election, so this will be an open seat, and it sets up a great showdown between the PCs and the Liberals. JMM, if you would, some more of the details, please. 
So this has been a, a liberal-held riding since 2003, uh, but uh, much of that is uh, Kathleen Wynne's candidacy herself. Uh, it is a seat that has historically changed, and it was a, a very narrow win for Kathleen Wynne last time. So a, a new uh, liberal candidate, in this case Stephanie Bowman, uh, you know, she uh, came uh, appointed by Stephen Del Duca to that riding. Uh, they obviously want to hold that riding, but uh, it could be very tight for her now. She doesn't have the same uh, name recognition uh, as Saunders does. Uh, she is a fellow of uh, Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. Uh, she's a member of the Institute of Corporate Directors. Uh, she has 25 years of experience as a financial services executive uh, and is a board member of the Bank of Canada. Uh, and of course, she has actually lived in the Don Valley West for 27 years. Uh, the NDP uh, are also contesting this riding, uh, former child advocate Erwin Ir Elman, uh, but they have never won this riding. Um, I do also want to note that Saunders was announced as the candidate, uh, not that he is uh, seeking the nomination. That has been a pattern uh, with a few announcements recently. Uh, it seems that Premier Ford has uh, appointed him to the nomination uh, rather than risking having him run against a another Tory candidate. And who knows, you could, at least in theory, uh, lose that nomination. And that is a power, of course, that the uh, constitution of the Progressive Conservative Party gives to its leader, in this case, Doug Ford. It is, however, also an interesting decision on who gets appointed and who doesn't. I know, for example, I, you know, I've talked to MPPs in the past, and, and when MPPs caucus, those who had to fight for their nominations often look down their noses at those who got appointed to their nominations. There's a kind of, what makes that person think they're so special? You know, I had to fight to get where, where I am. Uh, I had to defeat other people to get the nomination, and that guy ha got it handed to him on a silver platter. Now, if it's not handled with care, these kinds of things can cause morale problems in caucus. I have seen that happen. Uh, you know, one thing I, I want to say is uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the opposition parties handle this, uh, you know, how they handle running against Mark Saunders. Uh, he's, you know, as we've said, a former police chief. He brings a lot of credentials to this race, uh, and it would be a very valuable pickup for the Tories if they can swing it. Um, but to be uh polite about it, uh, neither the Toronto police nor his tenure as police chief are free of scandal either. Uh, so it is going to be very interesting to see uh, how hard the hardball gets in Don Valley West, if you take my meaning. I do. <laughs> there were some historic developments on Parliament Hill last week, and we should turn our attention to those. The Liberal government and the NDP in opposition have come to an understanding that will allow the current minority parliament to last until 2025. JMM, what have the two parties agreed to in terms of policy planks in this agreement? The big items here are uh, pharmacare and dental care. Uh, I'm going to start with the dental care program. Uh, it, it is not going to be a, a fully formed uh, program at first. It is going to start uh, rolling out in increments uh, first to uh, you know lower income families and uh, probably just for kids or seniors at this start. Uh, then we move on to pharmacare. Uh, again, this is not going to be uh, everyone all at once, but uh, some kind of program to, to cover the gaps for people who don't have uh, private coverage of their own. Uh, of course, you know, 80% of Ontarians already have uh, some form of prescription medical coverage through their workplace plans. So at least initially, the idea would be to uh, fill the gaps for the people who don't have coverage. So Steve, let me ask you, I mean, how unprecedented is an agreement like this? Well, not at all, actually. And uh, I well remember during my earlier days of covering Queen's Park, that this is very reminiscent of the accord that the Liberals and the NDP signed at Queen's Park in 1985. I was four. 
<laughs> you always love reminding me of that, right? Uh, this was Premier David Peterson and the NDP leader Bob Ray at the time, who agreed on a wide range of policy items over a two-year period. I think there were something like three dozen items in there, so much more in-depth than the current agreement in the federal scene. Uh, that accord did end 42 years of Tory dynasty. It put the Liberals in power under David Peterson as Premier. Uh, and again, similar to this arrangement in Ottawa, no cabinet seats for the NDP. So the NDP stayed in opposition. The Liberals governed. So this current agreement and the accord from 37 years ago were not coalition governments because the opposition parties did not have seats at the cabinet table. They are still in opposition. You mentioned their uh, policy uh, agreements, but I think it would be fair to say that the policy they, they most agreed on was that uh, they just did not want the Tories to be in power anymore, and they really thought somebody else should be. <laughs> <laughs> well, this certainly does isolate the Conservatives uh, on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, it actually might be a bit of a gift for the Conservatives, because whoever wins their leadership contest going on right now has, uh, you know, if the agreement lasts until 2025... Um, They've got all that time to get their act together. So this could be a blessing in disguise for the Conservatives. And what do you think this means for Justin Trudeau's personal political timetable? Well, on that score, a great deal, actually. It certainly gives him the added political runway to try to get his popularity numbers higher in case he wants to run for a fourth term. Uh, you'll well remember that I, I believe he is serving as prime minister now with the lowest percentage of the total votes ever. He only got 32% in the last election, so that's not much of what you'd call a solid mandate. So this gives him time to improve that. Conversely, if he does want to leave the prime minister's job and have this be his last term, he could depart, say, in 2024 and still give his successor a year to put uh, his or her stamp on the party. And for what it's worth, yes, I am doing a Bill Davis analogy here because, as you know, it is the law in Ontario that I do this. Mr. Davis won a majority government in 1971. He got a minority in 75, another minority two years later in 77, and pledged to have that second minority government last for four years, which he did. Didn't call an early election or anything. And then he ran a fourth time after the four years were up, and he won a majority government in his fourth and final election. And I don't know if I'm pushing this analogy, but here goes. Mr. Trudeau is essentially trying to do the same play from the same playbook. He won a majority in 2015 a minority in 19, another minority in 21. Like Mr. Davis, he's now pledging to have this minority last four years, at which time I wouldn't be the slightest bit surprised to see him run for a fourth term. Obviously, we have to wait till 2025 to see whether history repeats and he wins his majority back or any other number of potential permutations. But given these two men had a good relationship, Mr. Davis used to tease Mr. Trudeau that he was philosophically misguided, but Mr. Davis had a great relationship with Pierre Trudeau, the current prime minister's father, and he has a good relationship, had a good relationship uh, with Justin Trudeau. So it, it would not surprise me in the least if Justin Trudeau wanted to follow his friend's Bill Davis's footsteps and uh, seek a fourth and, in his view, hopefully majority government. Uh, given this development, it's perhaps inevitable that people are going to ask the players at Queen's Park whether this is a precedent for them after the next election. Uh, for example, if there is a, a minority legislature uh, after June 2nd, uh, would the New Democrats and Liberals team up to oust Ford? Stephen Del Duca addressed that at his platform event on Saturday as well. I believe I can work with almost anyone. I'm an open-minded person. But having said that, I have already said on the record that I know for sure Doug Ford is not the right person to lead Ontario. 
watching him closely as we all have over the past four years and the decisions that he's made, they just, they tell me loudly, resoundingly, that he's the wrong person to lead this province forward. And so I've said repeatedly, I cannot support Doug Ford. That certainly leaves the door open to a similar NDP liberal arrangement if the next election delivers a minority parliament. I, I tried to make a bit of trouble about this at the legislature last week. Uh, everybody, uh, after this uh, confidence and supply agreement was announced, everybody uh, on the opposition side kept saying, well, we won't support uh, a Ford government. We won't support a- another round of Premier Ford. And I-, I had to ask, well, you keep using the, like his name. Does that mean that you might support a conservative government with a different leader uh, at the head of the the, the PC party. Uh, nobody wanted to bite on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, after you've seen the um, the conservative video from the weekend, I mean, this whole campaign's going to be Doug Ford. So he's not going yeah. anywhere. Nice try, uh, but he's not going anywhere. Not until after the election, certainly. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, let's turn to the post-secondary scene here, because if you've got a kid in post-secondary or if you are a post-secondary student listening to this, you'll want to know that for the third straight year, the provincial government has mandated that colleges and universities freeze tuition fees. Lots of implications to that. JMM, take us through it. You know, this is one of those things that it sounds like uh, great news on the face of it. And, you know, honestly, if you are somebody who's been struggling to uh, pay tuition costs uh, like I did once upon a time, uh, you know, it is, uh, you know, an immediate sort of good news. Uh, But there are some some consequences that flow from this, right? Uh, Frozen tuition costs uh, mean colleges and universities have less money to hire staff, uh, less money to deliver other programs, other extracurriculars, etc. When the province first did this, inflation was running at 2%. So the impact was you know, less significant, though certainly uh, colleges and universities did uh, complain a bit about it. But now we have inflation running north of 6%, and this is going to really put a hole in the revenues that uh, post-secondary institutions were counting on uh, to to just to stay level with where inflation is bringing their costs. Uh, It's entirely plausible that they are going to have to let go of staff or cut programs. Uh, It is also worth mentioning uh, this only affects domestic students. Uh, Foreign students are going to have to pay more probably so that colleges and universities uh, don't fall even further behind. Uh, It is also probably worth bringing in a housing element to this because, you know, that's what Ontario law requires of me to talk about housing policy nerdery every once in a while. Um, You know, the the flow of foreign students to Ontario colleges and universities is one of the factors that is driving uh, housing shortages across uh, cities all over Ontario. And uh, this is one of the effects of these policies is to make colleges and universities even more reliant on foreign students. Um, that is just a, another side of this policy to just to keep in mind when we when we talk about this stuff. I think of Cape Breton University down in the Maritimes, where half the students, fully half, are foreign students and who are paying obviously disproportionately high tuitions in order to subsidize the domestic students. But uh, no question, colleges and universities are becoming increasingly dependent on attracting more and more foreign students in order to make their bottom lines stretch even further. And they'll have to do more of it now that the tuitions are being frozen for a third straight year. Okay, let's do a follow-up on the discussion we had last week on the pod about the auto sector. And once again, the feds, the province, and the auto industry, they're all coming together to build a $4.9 billion factory to produce batteries for EVs, electric vehicles. Some details here, please. Uh, Right. So this uh, is a factory that is supposed to be up and running by 2024. Uh, It will have uh, 2,500 jobs. Uh, The... uh... 
Everybody was was trying to keep the actual dollar figure of public support on the the the, the, the DL, and and then uh, a, a, a liberal MP actually tweeted out the number. It looks like the feds are putting up five hundred million dollars. Uh, the province is probably putting up uh, other multiple hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, you know, it is designed to uh, establish and you know reaffirm Ontario's place as a, a major world player, uh, both in the auto sector, but specifically in the EV sector. You know, as we talked about last week, you know, this just doesn't really happen anymore without substantial government subsidies, uh, which is clearly uh, what has happened here. Uh, but I do also want to offer a, a correction of sorts or clarification, I guess. In last week's episode, I said the government wasn't committing tax dollars to expand electric charger infrastructure. Uh, the money that uh, had been spent uh, was coming from uh, elsewhere. There was some federal government money and some money from uh, provincial utilities. Uh, that was true then, but it is not anymore. In a separate announcement last week, the government also said they are going to spend some new money to expand EV chargers uh, with a focus on building them out in rural areas. All right. And while we're on the subject, I note that you did a column last week on the advisability of cutting gas taxes versus transit fares as the best way to go in giving people a break because of the pressures of inflation and high gas prices. You want to just remind us of the gist of your piece? Uh, right. So, of course, people can go to TVO.org to read the the, uh, the actual text of the column. But, uh, you know, Green Party leader Mike Schreiner proposed this idea uh, about a billion dollars over a year, but he's actually only proposing to do it for at least three months for right now. So about $300 million uh, to cut transit fares in half. Um, obviously, good for the environment, uh, get people out of their cars, uh, back onto transit, which the ridership numbers are still quite low uh, relative to where they were uh, pre-pandemic. Uh, but it's also worth Putting this in the context of, you know, the the Ford government has already given motorists a billion dollar policy change uh, earlier this year by removing the fees for license plate stickers, and so part of what uh, Schreiner is hoping to do was, you know, just add a little bit of balance there uh, to to maybe throw a bone to people who don't benefit uh, because they either don't own uh, cars or uh, maybe they only have one car in their household as opposed to people who might own two or three cars and that those households benefit more from something like cutting license plate stickers. Um, you know, it's also, I think, a better idea than cutting uh, the gas tax. Uh, many American states uh, have done this or are uh, preparing to do this. And, uh, you know, it just undermines a whole lot of other policies that governments are, are trying to do, right? It encourages more driving, more pollution, uh, it cuts revenues, and it doesn't actually even reduce gasoline prices for very long at all. Uh, you know, really, we are at the mercy of supply and demand here. And if you lower the cost, cost of gasoline. One of the the real iron laws here is that very, very quickly, the, those prices just go back up. It's just that instead, gasoline companies and oil companies get that money instead of uh, the public through their governments. Yes, indeed. All right, let's talk about, boy, we don't seem to be able to go a week without uh, Randy Hillier's name coming back into things here. But, um, well, uh, Mr. Hillier is in trouble again. And uh, you want to let us know on what the problem is this time? Right, we're not going to uh, belabor this issue, uh, but we, you know, we didn't think we could do a podcast without mentioning uh, that uh, Lanark Frontenac Kingston MPP Randy Hillier, uh, he has been repeatedly censured by the legislature for anti-vax disinformation and supporting the convoy protests in uh, particularly egregious ways. But uh, as of Monday morning, uh, he has now been criminally charged by Ottawa police. Uh, Hillier faces nine separate criminal charges, including mischief and obstructing a police officer. Uh, he surrendered himself to Ottawa police early on Monday 
Sunday. Uh, I should say some of these are, are very serious charges with maximum penalties between five and 10 years. Uh, though at this point, we must of course add that nothing has been proven in a court of law and Hillier, like you or I, remains innocent until proven guilty. That is absolutely true. And we remind everybody he's not running again. So that will be an open seat next time. And uh, as they as if I can quote Richard Nixon, they're not going to have Randy Hillier to kick around for very much longer. All right, let's tee up this next interview that we've got coming now. Uh, we know that provincial governments have a vast array of issues that they're supposed to be on top of, everything from health care to education to the environment to the justice system, cultural institutions, and on it goes. Independent MPP Lindsay Park, who represents Durham in the Ontario legislature, has just introduced a private member's bill that focuses on one of the most important issues of our time, but one which governments don't seem to be all that on top of. The issue is loneliness. Uh, this, of course, has always been an issue for many people in society, uh, but it's become particularly acute over the past couple of years as lockdowns have exacerbated the isolation and loneliness many have felt. Here's my conversation with MPP Lindsay Park. So what prompted you to introduce the Connected Communities Act? Well, John Michael, last week I introduced uh, a bill in the Ontario legislature called the Connected Communities Act uh, that will require the Ontario government to develop a strategy uh, to reduce loneliness and social isolation and support Ontarians who may be struggling uh, with loneliness and, and social isolation. Uh, there's no question this has been uh, a major uh, symptom of the pandemic, but, but there's no question it was a huge issue before the pandemic as well. Um, before the pandemic, there were signs that many people in Ontario, young and old, were feeling less connected than they did in past generations, uh, seeing friends less, volunteering less time in the community, and the effect of new technologies all have had uh, an impact on our productivity, our health, our well-being, and the pandemic uh, only exacerbated this serious public health problem. Uh, which group or groups in society do you think are, are most vulnerable to loneliness and isolation right now? Well, I think some people, maybe when they hear this topic, assume it's only uh, seniors or the elderly um, that might be struggling with loneliness and social isolation. But um, actually, there were there were many studies before the pandemic to show uh, the young are uh, more lonely than the elderly. Uh, surveys have repeatedly discovered that. Um, and so this is uh, uh, an issue that can affect all ages. It can affect people um, that are living with other people, people that are living alone. Um, you know, you can live in a household with 10 other people and still feel lonely um, and feel isolated. And uh, so this is, a, I, I think, a major, a major issue of the day. It was a major issue before the pandemic. And I think there's uh, in some ways, uh, been a major case study around around this issue that it was forced upon us, many of us during the pandemic, that we were just naturally more isolated because of the pandemic restrictions. Um, and I think we need to look at a path forward. Um, studies have shown over and over how detrimental that social isolation and loneliness is for people's health. Some, an often cited, cited statistic, uh, John Michael, is that uh, being disconnected is just as dangerous uh, to good health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Now, I'm not an expert. I didn't come up with that stat, um, but it really, really startles you when you hear it put that way. 
So uh, tell me how this works from uh, the legislative point of view. You have introduced this bill for first reading. Uh, What happens now? So the bill will be debated uh, next week. I I introduced it last week. And uh, if it passes second reading next week, it would go to committee. Now, I recognize we're uh, we're close to an election and the, the time the time horizon for getting a bill like this passed before the election um, may be overly ambitious, but I, but I also think this is a, a nonpartisan issue that hopefully all parties get behind. And I think if there's that political will, uh, we've seen private members bills uh, accelerated on very short time timelines. Um, but in any event, uh, I think it's an, it's a discussion we need to have as, as a, uh, a community as a as a province, and um, you know I don't care which party <laughs> runs with the idea and and champions it from here on out. I'm I'm not running for re-election, but um, this is important discussion for me to start uh, before I conclude my term. Well, and I do want to talk about that in a moment, but. Uh... Sticking with uh, the the topic of loneliness, your first private member's bill was the uh, delightfully titled Golden Girls Act, uh, which uh, was not passed, but it it would have forbidden municipalities from using planning rules to to get in the way of seniors who uh, are not related to each other uh, from living together. Uh, Maybe I'm drawing too much of a connection here, but it seems to me that you've been thinking about this kind of thing for a while. You're exactly right, John Michael. This is an issue I've been thinking long and hard about since my first private member's bill, the Golden Girls Act. And that act was to fight discrimination against unrelated people who wanted to live together and share a home, specifically seniors in the example I was using. Um, And the connection is that the Golden Girls of Port Perry, the seniors who inspired that bill, uh, found that living together and sharing a home had not only benefits from a cost savings perspective, but also had many social benefits. And this is one type of solution to reduce loneliness and social isolation, but we need many more. Uh, This is an an area we need policy innovation in over the next decade uh, and a government strategy, which my Connected Communities Act is calling for, uh, would encourage that policy innovation we desperately need. Let me, I mean, take a bit of a side trip here for one second. You know, you were elected as a progressive conservative, uh, you know, certainly uh, Doug Ford, the, the the leader of that party, big, you know, small government kind of guy. Um, the pandemic has scrambled things a little bit for us all, I think. But uh, is this a problem that we need the government to fix? Or is this um, a problem that might be better fixed by the government getting out of the way somewhere? That's certainly a debate I'm open to, John Michael. Um, uh, One of the the reasons I decided to take this extra step, uh, calling on the government to introduce a strategy, is we have seen um, other jurisdictions uh, speak about this issue in in an elevated way. Uh, The United Kingdom went so far as to creating uh, a minister of loneliness. I saw again during the um, pandemic, I believe Japan it was, also created a minister of loneliness because it's such a per- pervasive public health issue. And we also don't have to look uh, far from home. Uh, uh, just before the pandemic, I'll note that the previous chief medical officer of health 
Dr. David Williams recognized this as a serious public health issue before the pandemic in one of his annual reports titled Connected Communities Healthier Together. And that, was, that, that title of his report was one of the, the things that, that uh, inspired the name of my bill. So I think obviously I have to take advantage of, of the opportunity of having you here uh, to, to broaden the discussion. Uh, this will be uh, your one and so far only term uh, in provincial politics. Uh, you are now sitting as an independent. You've had some bumps along the way, I think it would be fair to say. Do you have any regrets about getting into politics in the first place? You know, I was just at a community event earlier in the day. Uh, in Port Perry, one of the small communities I represent. And one of the things I was saying to uh, one of the volunteers uh, at the event was, you know, I, I never took a single day in government for granted. You never know how long you're going to serve. Um, and there can be all sorts of different reasons why your, your, your term comes up short or you end up getting more time than you initially expected. Um, and because of because of that, because that's the mindset I took, um, you know, I don't have any regrets. I used every single day to try and champion issues that would benefit my community, local projects that we'll be seeing the benefits of in my community of East Durham, Bowmanville, uh, Port Perry, and North Oshawa for the decades to come. And and uh, and and obviously, it's important to me now, sitting as an independent uh, for the conclusion of my term, that I continue to to work every day and not take a single day uh, for granted, and and to champion issues important to my community. Any thoughts on what you want to do next? I I'm taking some time uh, some time to decide, but one thing I'll say is, in politics, you see there are so many incredible. Uh, career paths people take and so many different issues people work on. You know, you might spend a day working on an issue in government that people in the community have spent 30 years working on. Um, and that's one of the great privileges of elected life that I'll, I'll take with me, a perspective I'll take with me as I consider my uh, next steps. I mean, I do have to ask just because uh, it's not just a provincial election we have this year. We do have a municipal election coming up in the fall. Do you think you might run for uh, local government in Durham? I, I don't have any plans to run for local government at this time. Uh, finally, uh, you know, bit of a hot seat question, I guess, but who are you going to vote for on June 2nd? I, uh, I haven't decided that yet. Uh, let's see how the campaign rolls out. All right. Uh, with that, uh, MPP Lindsay Park, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time, John Michael. And that was my interview with Durham MPP Lindsay Park. Let's do one more item here because 10 years ago this past Monday, in other words, March 28th, is the 10th anniversary of the death of the first black MPP in Ontario history. And actually, he was more than that. He was the first black parliamentarian elected anywhere in Canada. Leonard Braithwaite was his name. He was elected the Liberal MPP for Etobicoke in 1963. That's five years before Canada's first black MP, Lincoln Alexander, was elected. Mr. Braithwaite served until 1975. He graduated from the University of Toronto. He was a Harvard MBA, and he got his law degree from Osgoode Hall. Len Braithwaite was a real pioneer in Canadian political history. He was 88 when he died on March 28, 2012. We had a great discussion on the agenda about Mr. Braithwaite last week, so uh, we can put a link in the show notes if you want to check that out, but I thought it was worth remembering that um, as much as I loved Lincoln Alexander, being uh, from Hamilton, both of us were, uh, and, you know, he was really quite a political hero of mine growing up. 
uh, we do have to. I mean, the historical record shows Len Braithwaite was there five years earlier. And, um, and gracious and, of you to, to admit that something <laughs> happened prior to something happening in Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> you noticed that, eh? Thank you. Uh, yeah, but let's let's. Um, and you know what? I, I said this on TV and I'll say it again here. If you're in, in the north end of Etobicoke, um, check out Len Braithwaite Park. He's got a park named after him there. And, uh, you know, it might be a little cold these days to go check it out. But when it's a nice day, go check out the park. Go read about him. Uh, he was quite the pioneer. And we're happy to remember him on this, the, the week of the 10th anniversary of his death. We always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week. And we'll have that immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. We also remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash onpoly-newsletter. And we talked about the child care agreements this week. Yeah, we'd, so we had a bit to say earlier in this podcast on that. We had a lot more to say in the newsletter. So yes, indeed, do get the newsletter. Here now, my quote of the week. We go back to Saturday, Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca unveiling one of the most significant planks in his party's election platform. And one thing was missing. The leader's thick, black, horn-rimmed glasses. Stephen Del Duca has had laser eye surgery, which I asked him about at his news conference after the platform announcement. Uh, the first question is Steve Bacon from TVO. Go ahead, Steve. Hi, Stephen. I'm not going to pretend this is the most important question you're going to be asked today, but I am curious. Where did the glasses go? <laughs> did you ask this question on behalf of my daughter, Grace? That's what I want to know. She's, she's one of my two daughters who doesn't like the fact or didn't like the fact I was getting rid of them. I, I've talked about doing this uh, for a number of years. You probably know the technology around, uh, about, about, around helping those of us that have had glasses for a while has really changed over the last number of years. I made a decision a few months ago that I was going to go in this direction, so they're no longer here. Um, I hope you don't mind, Steve. I hope you like the look. That's Stephen Del Duca, sans lunettes, as they say en français. And here's my quote of the week from Premier Doug Ford in Brampton on Monday. And I always say, isn't it amazing when you work together uh, with the federal government and the municipal government, not in this case, yeah, well, it is municipal as well, uh, what we can do. And you, you saw what we were able to do when we went to Windsor. You saw what we were able to do in the largest uh, transit project in North America, $28 billion uh, uh, deal. And along with the green steel, so on and so forth, my point is we're working incredibly well uh, with the federal government. I'm very grateful to the prime minister, deputy prime minister, and the ministers uh, moving this forward. That's Premier Doug Ford in Brampton on Monday, uh, singing the praises of Canadian intergovernmental relations. <laughs> <laughs> and that is this week's episode of the Unpoly podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs> <laughs>